This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, O Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for April 14th, Friday, 2023. Your old pal, Justin Robert Young here. And some bad news for you. This isn't going to be a full episode. Uh, got a lot going on here at the old dog and pony show audio. Uh, launching a new season of World's Greatest Con. And so that's what's going to be the bulk of this episode is the second episode of our season. Um, I want to play that for you guys because I think it's really good. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. And we'll get to that in a second. I'll explain why I'm playing episode two and not episode one in a second. But I did want to do a little bit of conversation here for you because a very, very uh, uh, amazing story kind of broke over the last week or so. But but really, it's it's gotten full front and center over the last 72 hours. And it involves not only government, but also journalism. And you guys know that I cannot stop myself from talking about journalism. It involves leaked documents from the American military and intelligence uh, uh, sectors that were posted, according to reporting by both the Washington Post the New York Times and others, Bellingcat, I believe, is the first that that tracked it down. Posted initially in Discord. If you are not familiar with Discord, if you use the program Slack for your work, Discord is similar to that. If you don't know what either of those two things are, then just imagine it as a big chat room like you would see on on the internet. It's just kind of real-time communication. But Discord, unlike Slack, has become a place where a lot of people just sort of hang out. It has got incredible adoption throughout the younger cohorts of our great nation and world. And the ability to spin up what they call their own servers leads to more and more Communities, smaller and smaller communities. One of these communities that allegedly spun off from a fan community that uh, uh, erupted around a YouTuber, a gun and body armor YouTuber, was something called Thug Shaker Central. And on that, documents were leaked that eventually made their way through other sectors of the internet you know, the, the ones that, that really got the first attention were accurate, according to those who have seen them, assessments of the war in Ukraine. Also showing that the United States apparatus, intelligence apparatus spies on, well, everybody. The leak in question involves what appear to be classified documents, some of which are top secret and some relate to the war in Ukraine. Other documents indicate the extent in which the U.S. has compromised Russian decision-making, while still others contain material derived from spying on U.S. allies. The files, 
which appear to be hard copies of briefing materials. These were pictures that were taken began circulating on social media platforms associated with the gaming community, including Discord. U.S. intelligence agencies are taking the leak seriously and have launched investigations into the matter. More on that in a second. The U.S. Department of Defense is reviewing the photograph documents to assess their validity. Some material has appeared on Russian channels, and according to some, those seem to be altered potentially for disinformation purposes. Specifically, there is one picture wherein it shows Ukrainian casualties versus Russian casualties. And the ones that were circulating in the Russian channels have higher Ukrainian casualties or killed in action KIAs than Russian. Take that for what it's worth, because we are deep into the weeds on, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the intelligence gathering world. The leak highlights several key issues. Firstly, that the U.S. is known to aggressively spy on both allies and adversaries. And this leak reinforces that because we've got information from Israel, South Korea, and yes, Kiev, Ukraine, or spying on Zelensky. Secondly, the leaked material underscores the effectiveness of U.S. infiltration into Russian political and military planning to the extent that it has alerted Ukraine about upcoming missile strikes and targets because we are so deep inside the Russian machine. Although the documents reveal details about U.S. surveillance of Russia, it is unlikely that Russia was unaware of the fact that we have people inside. The leak may provide some insight into how the U.S. is targeting Moscow. The documents also expose the extent of U.S. penetration into Russian defense institutions and decision-making circles, largely through intercepted communications and human intelligence sources, which could now be at risk. In terms of Ukraine, the leaked documents reveal information about the Ukrainian military preparedness and resilience, as well as potential discrepancies in casualty numbers. The documents provide insight into U.S. and NATO training and assistance, which could be valuable to Moscow. However, it is also worth noting that the leaked information may not be entirely accurate. Intelligence is not foolproof, and it could only reflect what the U.S. agencies believe they know. One of the things that is very much in debate is whether or not the United States already has boots on the ground in Ukraine, whether or not the United Kingdom has boots on the ground, whether or not France has boots on the ground. Those are three pieces of information that were gleaned. The, the, the word according to these is that they are as part of a NATO force, but that would materially change the game a little bit. If American military and French military and the United Kingdom military are fighting, that would be an escalation. The impact of the leak could be a double-edged sword. While Russia may attempt to use the leaked information to sow discord, the extent of U.S. infiltration into Russian decision-making also highlights Russia's failures in military planning and intelligence. Although allies might be unhappy about the U.S. spying on them, the situation is probably going to blow over. It's not like everybody doesn't spy on everybody. As for Ukraine, the leak may encourage better and quicker resupply of key weapons. Some voices, including Glenn Greenwald, somebody that has been at the forefront of a lot of these conversations, especially around Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning, 
seems to suggest that there might be more to this. The fact that the things that are being taken from this are, wow, Ukraine really, really, really needs more weapons. Seems a little off to him. Now, Greenwald has his own bugaboos and issues. Just letting you know. Who did this is the question. That would be 21-year-old Air National Guardsman based in Massachusetts, Jack Teixeira. He's believed to be responsible for leaking hundreds of the documents revealing the military secrets and straining relations with allies. Teixeira is the one who led the online chat group Thug Shaker Central. According to an interview with somebody else who was in Thug Shaker Central, not only was Teixeira giving regular summarized long blocks of text about things that he was seeing in meetings, but then chided everybody for not interacting with that information more and made it more consumable by posting the pictures. Teixeira, as I speak to you, is currently in custody, tracked down by the FBI. Something that seems to be the case based on reporting as of now is that Teixeira was not looking to do this as a whistleblower. No, friends, this seems to just have been for the clout. He wanted everybody in that group, which again was a subgroup of a YouTube fan community, to think of him as important. Joe Biden Acknowledge that U.S. authorities are close to catching the person responsible, and as of now, they have. The Pentagon, meanwhile, is tightening its policies regarding top-secret clearance. Now, I know from when we talked about the Trump documents that there are people who are listening to me right now that have clearance. And something that I have said in the past is that something that I've read about and heard from other people with clearance is that, especially in the military and especially in our intelligence agencies, too much stuff is classified. Because if you classify everything, then that means everything becomes less secure. So much so that maybe a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman based in Massachusetts is having to is is having to give or is ha, has to be given there we go has to be given a higher clearance than he would otherwise because too much stuff is top secret i find it fascinating that we are talking more about the leaker than we are about the information because the information to me seems to be the story that should be the story for days And if you look at it in comparison to like Project Prism, which is what Snowden revealed, that was something that obviously the Snowden story was, you know, kind of uh, ripped out of the headlines because, well, it was the headlines, but it was, it was, it was kind of a movie, right? It was, he was in a different country he was on the run where was he going to land where the where was the united states going to extradite him there was a lot of stuff like that involved in the snowden thing this is a much more boring story but yet the coverage today you know and this is again 72 hours since this has been kind of a well-known thing is so much more about this kid than it is about the stuff that was revealed and i will say journalistically that bothers me Because this stuff 
is a look inside of our government. And sentiment around catching this kid and making him pay so the government can keep secrets seems, you know, a little backwards to me. But what do I know? I'm just a barking dog on the internet. All right, let's get into this episode of World's Greatest Con. Uh, If you've already listened to it, then uh, thank you so much. If you have not, let me uh, key you in on what this season is about. Of course, World's Greatest Con is hosted by Brian Brushwood, my co-creator on the show. He uh, tells stories that essentially reinforce the idea that cons don't fool us because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human. It is a show at its core about the frailty of our human experience. Something that, you know, especially when we're talking about stories like we just talked about, I think we should always keep front of mind. This season is about Project Alpha. Project Alpha is an extraordinary tale of two teenagers who lied to academics to say that they were genuine psychics in a time when a lot of people including the military. You know, the military that sometimes keeps secrets. Sometimes their secrets should be out there. You know, they shouldn't always have all of the secrets. The military at this time very much believed that parapsychology or the study of what they thought to be genuine psychic powers was important. After all, is it worth studying something if you genuinely believe that the human brain can spy on somebody from around the globe? That a psychic could be so powerful they could stop the president's heart? Our first episode of World's Greatest Con is really about that, about the idea of where the world was in the in in the late 70s, that that psychics were psychic powers were kind of taken a lot more seriously by people who take things serious than they are. One of the things that Brian and I in making this season kind of kept as a cornerstone, we didn't put it in the show, but we wanted to look at what happened in between like Yuri Geller, who we do have in the first episode being on the tonight show and taken seriously, or at least not having it be a a joke or a gag that he's a psychic on the tonight show. And that scene in ghostbusters when Bill Murray uh, has (laughs) the, uh, uh, he's doing a psychic test for, you know, some goofball and a hot co-ed and you know, as the viewer that he is letting the co-ed believe she is psychic and he is uh, giving electric shock to the goober. But that's played for laughs, that this is a frivolous pursuit by an academic. And what we believe happened in the middle was Project Alpha, something that eventually really embarrassed the academic world away from parapsychology. So it is with that that we bring you into episode two. In episode two, we meet the two kids that put this... um, put this plan into action. Uh, We have both of them. They both participated in this season. Again, 
If you haven't listened to it, I would greatly encourage you to do it. And especially when we have stuff like this in the news, a questioning of exactly what the people in charge, the people we elect and appoint and fund to take things seriously, when their secrets fall out into the public, it helps to know what they are. And sometimes it helps to put a stress test to it. And that's what this story, the stakes of this story are. So here is the uh, second episode of World's Greatest Con. Uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, uh, the, the, the $10 tier, thank you guys for doing this. And uh, I hope you can understand and appreciate that I am, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm taking an episode off. We'll be back at it. Now that this thing is out the door, I have a lot more uh, uh, free free space in my brain. So I greatly appreciate that uh, you guys are giving me the time. All right. I will see you Monday for patrons, and I will see you next Wednesday for the rest of yins. Can you believe the pens didn't make the playoffs? Anyway, he too. Like, I have nothing to do now. This is like I've had, every spring I've, just, I've had playoff basketball and playoff hockey. And uh, now nothing. And it rained like four feet in Fort Lauderdale. Things are, things are going haywire. Anyway, here we go. Second episode of World's Greatest Con. Uh, I will see you guys next week. Bye. This is World's Greatest Con. I'm Brian Brushwood. The following two sentences sound absolutely incompatible. And yet... To the best of our research, there's no question that both of them are absolutely true. In the 1670s, Isaac Newton invented calculus. In the 1670s, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz invented calculus. For the next several decades, in journals, colleges, and conferences, they battled it out about who copied who. Each one of them was certain that the work they put into this mathematical breakthrough was the foundation for the other. And yet today, as I speak to you, we know this as an example of multiple discovery. It's the concept in science and art that two individuals totally independent of each other can come up with the exact same idea and publish it at the exact same time. And it happens more often than you'd think. In the 18th century, oxygen gets discovered by Carl Wilhelm Scheele, Joseph Priestley, Antoine Lavoisier, and others. The theory of evolution gets independently advanced in the 1800s by both Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, People are still debating that one to this day. And according to the research of Robert K. Merton, these multiple discoveries, they're not the outlier. They're the rule. Okay, scientific discoveries, I mean, those are just waiting to be discovered, right? But art is something different. Not so much. There's a million examples of this in the world of music. And your mileage may vary on what your favorite is. But for my money... It can't be better than George Harrison, former Beatle, striking out on his own, and his hit single, My Sweet Lord. My sweet Lord. My 
one little problem. By 1987, George Harrison finds himself in a courtroom because somebody else thinks his song is a total ripoff. That song is 1963's He's So Fine by the Chiffons. I ain't a wizard of music, but, um, wow. Despite revealing all of his secret techniques to brilliant songwriting, including pulling out a guitar and performing right there in the courtroom, Harrison is found guilty of what they call unconscious plagiarism. I mean, the moment you hear that, you think, really? Really? We're really supposed to believe that there's some magic phenomenon of multiple discovery and not the far simpler explanation of it's just one person copying another person and shoehorning themselves in to take the credit. And because of this reaction, these situations are rife with suspicion, bad blood, and conflicts that long outlive them. But my friend, I am here to tell you that multiple discovery is indeed very real. And I'm going to explain exactly how it can happen. This is the story of two boys. One's in the middle of a stable upbringing. The other's bouncing around the globe, constantly being disappointed by those who are charged with taking care of them. They both discover the same interests. And they're both filled with the righteous indignation that only a teenager can have as they both decide to change the world in the exact same way. Both of our protagonists are also in contact with one man who puts their tracks together. In an alternate timeline, the two of them would fight forever for credit. But we're lucky. We live in the timeline where they discover that they're brothers. But as these two pull off ever-increasing wonders, they're accruing a debt. Their brilliant plan is a multi-year-long con, one that is destined to humiliate and beclown well-meaning adults who genuinely care for them. This is the story of humble origins and righteous justice, of not knowing who your allies are until you're fighting side-by-side in the trenches. Remember that sick world we told you about in our first episode? The one that was so desperate for a cure that they turned to fraudsters? Well, the heroes of our story, they don't know how to fix everything. But they're going to blow the whistle on these snake oil salesmen, and they're going to do it using the same manipulative tricks. Honesty is the best policy, and to prove it, these two will lie to anyone it takes. This is the story of Project Alpha. But for me... It may just be the world's greatest con. This episode of World's Greatest Con brought to you by, you know what? Actually, let's start here. Heads up, gang. Story matters. You know it and I know it. That's why we're here right now. And that's why you need to go to Amazon.com and grab yourself a copy of The Girl Beneath the Sea by Wall Street Journal bestselling author Andrew Maine. Picture this. 
You're Sloan McPherson, a skilled diver for the Broward County Sheriff's Office in Florida. Your assignment? To recover a body from the dark and murky depths of the intercoastal waterway. But when you get there, you're stunned to discover that the victim is no stranger. It's somebody from your own family. And the twists only start there. Sloan finds herself at the center of an investigation, and she's the prime suspect. The Girl Beneath the Sea is a masterclass in suspense, expertly weaving together underwater adventure with heart-pounding murder mystery. If you love suspense, if you know how good Andrew Maine's razor-sharp writing is, and you love a compelling cast of characters, this book is an absolute must-read. Head on over to Amazon.com right now and get your copy of The Girl Beneath the Sea by Edgar Thriller Award finalist Andrew Maine. That's The Girl Beneath the Sea by Andrew Maine, available now at Amazon.com. So I was born as Stephen Shaw in England. Uh, we came to the United States, my mom, my dad. My mom uh, left that man within a year, and we went back to England. She remarried. She had two kids. We emigrated to South Africa. They were a year old and three years old. I was nine when she abandoned us there with an alcoholic stepfather. I pretty much raised him by myself until I was 16 years old. Uh, my biological father found out my situation. He was in Australia, so I went to Woomera, Australia, which was a rocket base. Uh, he was in the Air Force in the middle of nowhere, the open mines. From there, we went uh, to Colorado. Aurora was just starting out. There. It was a beautiful town now. now then now it's <laughs> yeah, not so great. Um, All right, so, disclaimer uh, we for the to, remainder uh, of this story. I've been personal friends with Banachek for decades. But considering how much this story means to everybody we're about to talk to and talk about, I won't lie. I'm a bit nervous for how they're going to react to this. But because we have to tell this story right, I'm going to do my best to block all of that out and just talk to you. A little bit further to my South Africa days. So, um, you heard him. Our story finds him in a suburban Western Pennsylvania home. He's shy, nervous, still waiting for somebody who says they're going to help to actually come through for them. But geez, England, South Africa, Australia. The United States. If you ever wondered what the perfect blender of all of our accents would sound like, this is it. I wasn't really socially adept, right? I, I, was, I was very, very shy. If the teacher called on me, I would turn red if she just asked me a question. Um, I wore a heavy, heavy coat in the middle of summer in the back of the classroom. I could so relate to Banachek here. Growing up, it was California, Houston, Colorado, Central Texas overseas in Norway. When you move around a lot, there's this constant sense of a need to reinvent yourself, to reintroduce yourself. For a lot of kids, the secret to unlocking these friendships is magic. And I didn't discover that until I was almost an adult. Banachek had the gift of figuring that out at a very young age. And it was learning how to do these things that became sort of my opening to other people, really. But now I felt like I was part of 
in a way, I felt at times, in a way, other people perceived me as part of their culture, part of their group. I never really felt like I was part of a group. And even today, I have a very hard time feeling like I belong with any particular group. Banachek becomes very, very good at tricking people. The class prankster, using his psychic powers, he stops a clock at school. He makes the school bell ring early. He's a hero. And he begins to earn a reputation as he becomes more popular. He gets another job at a racetrack. One time there was a policeman, one of the local policemen in town, and I was bending keys a lot back then. And he said, hey, bend one of my keys. I said, well, give me a key that you don't need. Well, he didn't think I could do it. So he gave me his patrol key. And sure enough, I bent it, and he had to call his buddies to come bring another key because he couldn't drive his patrol car. Really overconfident, I would say. So I wrote Randy a letter, and I said, hey, if you ever need a kid to a full scientist, I'd be happy to do that. Um, Never expecting I was ever going to hear back from him. Meanwhile in Iowa, meet Mike Edwards. I led what I like to call a leave-it-to-beaver childhood. A small town, ride our bikes everywhere. My mom and dad were always home. Dad and mom went to all of the sporting events or performances. He's a walking Norman Rockwell painting, strapping teenager who has yet to discover a single activity he can't excel in. Birthday parties, things along those lines. And then I joined uh, when I got into high school freshman year. I was in our choir, and one of the first songs that we were doing, and we were going to kick off every show, was from the musical Pippin, and it was the song Magic to Do. And somebody said to our choir director, you know, Mike's a magician. And I, I was just kind of really cutting my teeth at the time, but I started kicking off that performance. So I was going on stage, and I was doing just a couple of, of quick magic effects uh, linking rings and some other visual magic like that as the as the choir, the show choir, would actually come on stage and get ready to perform. And then I'd slip away, music would start. This literal choir boy is fulfilling every hope of his two loving parents. He's artistic, he's an athlete, he's competing in gymnastics... Like most boys his age, he loves the stories of crime fighters, people who make things right for those who can't. The only time his parents don't support him is when he begins a career as a local escape artist. Ask if she would be attending Mike's event. Barbara Edwards, Mike's mom, says, absolutely not. (laughs) And it was classic. It was at that point that I think they trusted what I was doing. They knew that I was taking all the safety precautions. But at the same time, they didn't want to stomach the uh, the stress of watching their oldest son uh, put his life in danger. It's at this time, both boys, each from radically different backgrounds, they read the same book. The Magic of Yuri Geller by James the Amazing Randy. Take a moment. Wrap your head around what this book means to each of them. They both know how damn well easy it is to fool people. They're both fooling kids and adults alike. In fact, the more they fool people, the more those people seem to like them. This is something all magicians go through. Magic becomes a crutch to make friends. So when James Randi lays out exactly how Geller has been fooling academics, they can't help but both come to the same assumption. 
If the authorities have disappointed them, then they are exactly the kind of people who can make things right for those who can't. It's Mike who takes the first action. Fall of 1979. A friend of mine who knew about my, you know, my uh, uh, psychic abilities, but also knew that it was fake, came back from the University of Northern Iowa. And Connie says to me one weekend, my uh, uh, introductory class to psychology, uh, that professor says that he's actually met Uri Geller and says he's legitimate and that he's truly a psychic. I said, Connie, you know better than that. Tell your professor that you know somebody that has the same abilities as Uri Geller and ask if he'd like me to come speak to the class. She said, are you serious? I said, yeah, but don't say anything about me being a magician or anything else. She said, what are you thinking about doing? I said, I think, I think I'm going to go there. And it's a 90-minute class, about 200 students. If I get this invite, I'm going to convince them that I'm really psychic. And then I'm going to show them how I fooled them so that they're going to be smarter going on with this. She says, okay, I'll do that. Next weekend, she comes back home. She's like, Mike, he's going to be reaching out to you. He wants you to come lecture at the class. This would be great. He's very excited for it. And that was it until I was actually uh, contacted by Professor David Whitsett. Plan is simple. Go to the professor's class. Show him exactly what he wants. A legit psychic. He's so excited about the plan, he calls his hero, James Randi. He had no idea who I was. I did a lot of research to figure out where he lived, because it's in the front of his book where it says, you know, he signed it. Rumson, New Jersey. He picks up the phone. Hello? Uh, James Randi, please. Speaking. (laughs) There's a little vapor lock on my side, because you're talking to your hero now. You're not expecting him to pick up the phone. Um, So I explained to him, what I was going to do, um, you know, is there anything that he could give me any advice or anything on this on? No, no, I think that'd be great. And we'd like you to write up an article for that. And I think that would, you know, we'd be very interested in it. Okay, that's great. Preparing for the big moment, Mike starts building a character. He doesn't want to appear ignorant about the latest news in parapsychology. So he goes to the parapsychology paper of record, the National Enquirer. And it's there he sees it. An article talking about a laboratory that was created in Washington University in St. Louis, being headed up by a guy named uh, Professor Peter Phillips. And Phillips had gotten a half a million dollars from uh, the McDonald Foundation, James McDonald from McDonald Douglas Aircraft Corporation. The McDonald Douglas Delta has launched more commercial payloads than any other rocket. Our TimeNet system speeds error-free data anywhere in the world. This is America's biggest tank. Our C-17 will land it where no other transport can. We're giving America its money's worth in aviation, space, and information systems. We're McDonnell Douglas. Specifically wanted this to go to Washington University to study psychics. And they were looking for psychic metal-bending children. I call Randy up almost immediately. Randy, it's Mike Edwards again. Remember, I was going to do this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, uh, change of plans. 
I said, have you heard about this? And I'm telling him about the story. No, I have not heard about that. So the plan with the professor changes. Maybe Mike can cast his line for a bigger fish. Instead of busting himself for the benefit of one professor and a bunch of college kids, maybe he could apply to be a part of a big study like Geller did at Stanford. Finally, the big day arrives. Uh, The professor at one point hands me a spoon out of his pocket, and it was already bent, and I was able just to grab it in a way that it didn't, nobody could see it, and then as I turned around, I just let it droop, and people were just like, oh my God, as soon as he touched it, it just wilted. I brought people up from the class, and I had, uh, I bent a couple of car keys in their hands. People write things on, on index cards, and we put them in envelopes and light them on fire, and I could tell them what the images were. In a moment of serendipity, what Mike doesn't know is that the first object he manipulated with his mind belonged to the sports editor at the school newspaper. That reporter writes a breathless account of Mike's supernatural talents. It was a big success. Now, I know it was a big success because the professor was more than happy to write a letter to me. So I was able to send that copy of the document and that letter off to the guys at the Mac Lab. Armed with a legitimate academic bona fide, even though gained by deception, he applies to the Mac Lab. He gets accepted and immediately calls Randy, letting his hero know that he was following in his footsteps. On the other side of the U.S., Steve also wrote to Randy. And because he lives so much closer, Steve got an invitation to visit in person. And he lived in Rumson, New Jersey, right? So he comes, he picks me up at the bus station, the Greyhound station. We uh, head on over to his house, and it was a true magician's house. I mean, the door opened from the wrong way. It looked like there were hinges there, but it opened in the opposite direction. When you rang the doorbell, there was a big chime and a loud voice, and it was uh, the shadow nose, the Walter Gibson thing from back in the day, right? You walk in, there's a clock that's running backwards. He's got huge macaws right there. He's got doves. He's got cats. He's got um, a big, huge bookcase that opens up, you know, from one side. And there's a hidden big room in there. And it was just, it was exactly what you would expect a magician's house to be if you were young, right? It's important here to highlight why Steve and Mike are the perfect age to pull something like this off. Last episode, we talked about the idea that psychic powers couldn't be replicated under intense pressure. That idea had permeated academia. The root of the idea was that if the psychic doesn't believe they can do something by way of undue skepticism, bad vibes, then you should eliminate as much of that painful oversight as possible. And who has less of an awareness of skepticism than kids? This is, of course, ridiculous on its face. If you've had a kid, if you are a kid, if you were a kid, if you've babysit a kid, you know they're sensitive to skepticism. You've seen them shuffle, refuse to meet your gaze. Of course they understand it when they see it. (laughs) And the idea that kids don't lie? They're born liars. They have to learn what the truth is. The moment that the Mac Lab said, we want you to come down and be tested by us or visit us. And it was a very relaxed environment. 
But I remember flying in, and that morning it was a little bit rainy. And as I land in St. Louis, flying from Cedar Rapids, as I land in St. Louis and kind of through the rain, I see this building and big, bold headlines on it because it's, it's uh, Lambert Field in St. Louis, and it's McDonnell Douglas. We're McDonnell Douglas. God, you've stepped in it now. You wrote a check that I don't know if you can cash. Like a less cocky Luke suddenly coming onto the Death Star. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not quite the you know warm, fuzzy feeling you want. Hold on to this moment, because up until now, both of our heroes have performed in front of all kinds of audiences. They've decided independently that they were going to fool members of academia. They both independently contact their hero to let him know, and they independently applied for this massive study. And it's only now that one of them is realizing maybe they've gone too far. Here's why. Starting now, grown-ups are calling the shots and grown-ups are going to set the rules. This is a game neither of them have played. And they're about to find out how good they are. Once he's settled in St. Louis, he meets Peter Phillips, the man directing the Mac Lab. Now, Mike is conservative with the kind of psychic phenomenon that he demonstrates, but he is not in any way hesitant to spin very elaborate comic book tall tales explaining where his psychic powers came from. Um, So I told stories of how, as a young kid at my grandparents' uh, place in South Dakota, uh, I got too close to an electric fence, got shocked, uh, passed out, for a number of minutes. And after that, strange things would happen. A watch that my grandmother gave me, a little Timex would stop working or the time would be off. Mom and dad would take it into the shop, but they didn't want to spend a lot of money because it was a relatively cheap gift at the time. And it would work fine until I put it back on and things like that started happening. And the metal bending just kind of came over time. And so that was kind of the genesis of my story. Well, my grandmother had given me a watch, but my grandparents lived in a very, very small town. My grandmother was the county librarian. My grandfather ran a dry cleaning store. There were no cattle. There was no cattle fence. There was nothing like that. The first trip goes well. Phillip's sufficiently impressed with the psychic phenomenon that Mike's demonstrating. Mike takes a flight out, lands breathes a deep sigh of relief. So far, so good. And when he gets back, there's nobody he wants to talk to more than James Randy. Randy equally is excited. He sends back to Mike a raft of papers detailing exactly the do's and do nots during the entire process. Everyone eventually agrees there's one rule. If anyone at the Mac Lab asks you straight out, are you doing a magic trick? You must fess up immediately. But more crucially, in Randy's initial letter, he suggests that the entire caper be called Project Alpha. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, Steve finds out about the Mac Lab as well. I had three jobs at the time when I was in high school, and one of them was at Washington Hospital. 
There was a girl by the name of Tammy that was there, and we both worked in the housekeeping department. We would make out in the closet sometimes <laughs> in the hospital. Um, Tammy brought me an article, an Associated Press article, and this was in 1979. And the article said they were looking for kids that could bend metal. So after I got that, I wrote them, um, because there was an address you could write to, I wrote them a letter saying that I could bend metal with my mind. I got a letter back from them. Again, I didn't expect that I was going to hear back, just like with the Randy letter. Never expected I was going to hear back. I got a letter back, said, we are very interested in, in hearing from you. You know, we'd like to fly you out. Probably about four or five days after that, I got a call from Randy who said, hey, there's this university has been given half a million dollars and there's a gentleman there um, that's going to be in charge. And I said to Randy, I said, stop, um, think of his initials. <laughs> Is it start with a P and an O? No, maybe a P and a P. He says, how the hell do you know? I said, I was going to let you know. I was going to write you a letter and tell you I've already been accepted. But it was in that same phone call that he says, yeah, well, I've been approached by another kid. Um, by the name of Mike Edwards. And I said, well, can I trust Mike? He says, I really don't know that much about Mike. I said, all right, I will play it by ear. So I had no clue if Mike and I were going to get along. I also knew that if Mike wasn't any good, that I was probably going to out him at some point because I couldn't have that danger coming over to me. Randy calls Mike back, and Mike is equally skeptical about getting a partner in on this. Okay. Tell me a little bit about him, and he tells me Steve Shaw, and he's from Pittsburgh, and things along those lines. And I said, "Okay, Randy, but I will, I will just tell you right now, I didn't spend all this time and energy to get where I am right now with these guys to have some, un, you know, unknown clown. He's got to be much more attentive to the con and this being a long con than here's a couple of quick tricks." Because if he looks phony, it's going to reflect on me or it could reflect on me since I'm the one that's talking about it. So out of the 300 people that initially auditioned or tried to become subjects as the Mac Lab, the Mac Lab decided to focus on two metal benders, Steve Shaw, Banachek now, and myself. So the date is set, travel's arranged. Mike and Steve are about to meet at the Mac Lab to find out once and for all how good the rigors of psychic research are. Mike, somebody meticulous, careful, who began with a grand plan. Someone who wanted to prove on a small scale what he could do before hitting the big leagues. And Steve, somebody who read about the Mac Lab, stops making out with Tammy for five seconds, shrugged, and said, why not? Sign me up. These two polar opposites of psychic performance are about to team up whether they like it or not. This is normally where an ad would go. But instead, I have a question, a proposition. This is far and away the most exciting, biggest story we've told yet. Hopefully, you're feeling it right now at this moment. So I'm going to give you an option. You can keep on listening week over week, episode by episode, and the ads will be there. Or right now, using the language of a con man, 
right now, you can have access to the first five episodes of this entire season. Completely ad-free, exquisite quality, everything flows like music. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash greatest con. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash greatest con. Once you sign up, you'll be a sustaining member of our incredible community, and you'll be keeping small-time guys like us loud, live, and independent. And best of all, you'll be able to get right now the entire rest of the story, except for episode six, which we haven't made yet. Patreon.com slash greatest con. Mike, 18, the perfect son, mastermind of the whole scheme, lands at the airport. Steve and I had this, in the early part of our relationship, this little trust dance. He's joined by Steve, 19 years old, the kid from the wrong side of the tracks that hasn't met a single person he can't fool. I get to the airport, I land, I land first, and then I go over to where Mike's coming in. And what's Mike's first impression of Steve? This is going to come, this is going to come way out of left field, and I'm going to get so much shit about this later from Banachek. Arnold Horshack from the old Welcome Back Cotter. And soon after, the boys meet Peter Phillips, the man who will oversee the experiments which will come to be known as the Mac Lab. Steve immediately starts sizing him up. And he's got a, 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 we talked to him, but he has this weird wristband on and I ask him about it. And he says to me, he got it from a witch doctor, you know, and it keeps him safe or something along those lines. This is too good to be true. I mean, seriously, the head of the experiment immediately brings up witch doctors? I mean, it's got to be a ruse, right? Unless it isn't. Because that would make sense that if they're doing a psychic thing, they would be kind of... But I mean, it's so on the nose. But then again, they're bringing in kids to do a... Oof. So they're leaving the airport, and there's this question of logistics. Steve doesn't have a license, and they have to rent a car. The kids aren't old enough to drive the rental car. So they decide Phillips will drive the rental car, and the kids will drive Phillips's car. This is the first moment that the two of them are actually alone, completely alone, no prying eyes. This is the moment they can forge their alliance, and more importantly, a moment where opportunity comes knocking. I look in the back seat and I see there's a briefcase back there. I bring the briefcase below the dash to the front seat. I look and it's locked. I'm going, well, if it's locked, that means they don't want you to get in there. It must be something they don't want us to see. Easy to open a briefcase, as you know. So I, I get the briefcase open. I look inside and there's all this cutlery in there, all this silverware, right? I go, oh, this must be the stuff that they're going to be using, you know, in the lab. What are you doing? He says, I just, he twists it up and... It, it, kind of making a mess out of this thing. I open the glove compartment. There's some metal objects in there. I start bending those up. I close it. It was at the point when I started reaching over for the keys that Mike said, I think you've done enough damage. That set our tone. And so it is on. Both talented young magicians, one way more aggressive than the other, both feeling each other out to be the alpha of Project Alpha. But well, one thing is for sure, both of them know that one wrong move is going to tip off the Mac Lab, make them suspicious, end the project before it really begins. Still, they both want to show that they have the goods. So a dinner at Phillips's house also becomes a proving ground. 
Uh, there was like, for instance, there's an area where there's a dining room and there's a door that goes in the kitchen on one side. But if you walk around the dining room on the other side, you go into the living room, which also goes around and comes back into the kitchen again. So I'm uh, in the area by the living room and Mike's standing by the area by the, uh, the dining room, but he's in the kitchen. And I, I make a signal to Mike to keep talking to Phillips. I walk around, I go to the, uh, the table, I bend up all the silverware on the table. I come back around while he's talking and he thinks I'm behind him the whole time. And I signal to Mike not to go into the, uh, into the dining room. Phillips goes into the dining room and he's like, oh my God, all the silverware's been on the table. So yeah, we, we put, we set up threads to knock cards off, birthday cards off the, uh, the, 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 uh, the fireplace. And we did all these things. So we just, we were playing havoc with this poor guy before we even got into a laboratory. You can feel it, right? Our nascent team is coalescing around their shared purpose. They're going to destroy the concept of parapsychology, or at the very least, make it impossible for charlatans to disguise themselves as psychics. For that to happen, they have to seamlessly humiliate the Mac Lab and everyone involved with it. Or as Steve puts it, we see these people as the enemy. We don't see them as people. Going forward, keep in mind, Mike and Steve, they're not at the Mac Lab full time. They go back and forth between hometowns and St. Louis. Mike goes back to college in Iowa. Steve goes back to work in Pennsylvania. Each of their trips to the Mac Lab lasts around a weekend. But just put yourself in their shoes, that adrenaline coursing through your veins once you come back home. Realizing what you did, thinking about how you could do more. It's those first few scattered sessions where Mike and Steve go from two performers trying to one-up each other to an actual team. There's a lot of us helping each other to be able to do things. Uh, when we were bending metal rods, you know, I would distract or I would get mine bending while he could actually put a bend into his. And Mike and I had a cue. And the cue was, if we ever wanted to talk, we would say, hey, do you want to go ahead and get a drink? Because the, the machines were down the hallway, right? Because the Mac Lab was in a building with other uh, businesses as well. And we would tap each other under the table. And he says, hey, do you want to go get a, uh, a drink? And I know what he wants. And I go, no, I'm good. And he, he puts his foot on my foot. Well, I'm really thirsty. Why don't you come with me? You know? Ah. So he's, he's grinding my foot on the table. I'm like, oh, fuck. You know? Yeah. So we go down the hallway. And he says to me, he says, how did you do that? I go, you're not going to believe me. And he says, well, how did you do it? I said, well, Mike, you know. After all these hours of working in the Mac lab, I finally found out I'm a genuine psychic. <laughs> so Mike, friendly, but he, but he pushes me hard up against the machine. Tell me, goddammit. I think Mike and I became really good friends from spending so much time in the Mac lab. And in the Mac lab, we would mess each other with each other consistently. You know, there was always the joking. There was always the whistling. There was always, it was a lot of sarcastic humor which tends to bond people if you've got sarcastic humor. If you don't get angry at somebody because they're being sarcastic with you and you give it back and they can take it, that bonds two people pretty quickly. And I think that that happened with Mike and I. And after a few of these weekends, as the pair became better and better teammates, they also start to realize that they're kind of celebrities. They get flown out to perform, the Mac Lab rents them hotel rooms, and all they got to do is spend a few hours in a lab each trip. <laughs> Even better... They don't even have to get everything right. Being too accurate makes you look like a magician. And being a little erratic is so much better 
if you want to prove you're a genuine psychic. Speaking of erratic, if you're young, you're male, you're fooling adults that are paying you to be there, what do you suppose you do in your after hours? College students, nightclubs, uh, you know, wherever teenage boys meet women. Steve loved to when we were out at nightclubs to use magic. He'd use cocktail napkins and we'd do a, a you know, billet switch. All right, non-magicians gather around. Steve is about to read somebody's mind. A thought is written down on a piece of napkin. All he needs to do is get a little sneak peek, and then he can reveal her innermost thoughts. Only problem is, Mike has replaced the written-down thought napkin with one that's totally blank. There's nothing for Steve to reveal. And of course, you know, or they're lighting it on fire and he's going to reveal whatever it was. And I'm just, there's absolutely nothing to see. And we would, and we, I, and so we would, we would screw with each other. Got it. Fool the adults, bond as fraudsters with hearts of gold, head out to the bars, pick up women, then show up at the Mac Lab hungover. And we're in the Mac Lab, you know, I would sleep sometimes on the couch while Mike was doing some stuff. Mike would sleep while I'm doing some stuff. Once when the boys were in New York City, they were at a bar and discovered that they were surrounded by what we would now commonly call sex workers. Each one of them looking for a date. And one comes up to me and says, you know, hey, what's, hi, what's your name? I said, Mike, where are you from? I said, Chicago. Because nobody knows where the hell Cedar Rapids, Iowa is. Uh, Chicago. Oh, okay, do you want to buy me a drink? I said, I'd love to, but my buddy's buying tonight, so you'd have to ask him. She goes over to him, and he kind of gets rid of her quickly. But the second girl comes up, and she asks me the same questions. Hmm. I can have some fun with this. What's your name? Steve. Steve Shaw. Well, where are you from? Pittsburgh. Want to buy me a drink? My buddy right next to me. He's, he's got the money he's paying tonight. Oh, she goes over. Hi, what's your name? And he innocently says, Steve. Steve Shaw. Where are you from? Pittsburgh. What are you doing here? Well, we're. What are you assholes trying to prove? <laughs> and here he is, innocently deer in the headlights. It's now 1980. They've been back to the Mac Lab again and again, and a pattern emerges. They're fooling, then partying. They're partying, then fooling. These two side eye looking possible competitors have become bona fide bros. And on one night, they combine their two favorite pastimes. It's kind of a sleepy day at the Mac Lab. Neither Steve nor Mike have many hits that day. But Mike realizes something. The lab space that they're using is on the garden level. And there are windows on the garden side. During these mostly uneventful experiments, Mike says he's a little stuffy and tries to crack the window. Staff lets him. And at the end of the day, Mike closes the window, but makes very sure it only looks like it's latched. This leaves the Mac Lab exposed. Just like that first briefcase in Peter Phillips's car when they first met, Mike and Steve now have access to everything in the Mac Lab. They can prepare items, they can find out what experiments are coming. I mean, they could do anything. The two go back to their hotel. And they make meticulous notes on exactly what they've seen, what they want to do, and how they're going to do it. <laughs> Just kidding. They go out and party till two in the morning. 
We go partying, go uh, across the river in St. Louis. Oh, we're going hard, yeah. These two drunk, unpublished stars of parapsychology decide it's time to make their move. Even at this advanced stage of partying and drinking, they know how they're going to break in. No flashlights. When you get inside, turn on all the lights so security assumes you belong there. Now, mind you, this is long before webcams. They wouldn't even have motion sensors in there. They get to the window. I'm skinny. I climb up. You know, Mike pushes me up. I get through the window. I step down. There's a table there. I step on the table. I get in the Mac lab. I go around. I let Mike in. It was unlocked. Um, We were able to, at this point, Steve went in, went down the wall, and he propped the doors open to get out to the side door to where I got in came through and we got inside of the Mac lab and we tore the place apart. And we're bending up everything inside, like just bending everything. Every clock that we could find, we changed to a different time. Anytime that there were spoons or forks or anything else, we went through all those, we bent them, we twisted them, we kind of created havoc in this place. But you know, they've done all this before. Spontaneous PK, bending silverware, moving, changing time. One thing they hadn't done was affect what the Mac Lab staff called the Mini Lab. It's essentially an empty fish tank with no visual way to open it. Inside the tank are a whole bunch of substances, coffee grounds with metal cubes in them, inviting someone with telekinetic powers to move the cubes with their mind. Pens, paper, you get it. In all their time in the lab, the mini-lab was one thing Steve and Mike avoided because neither of them knew how to access it. Until tonight. Mike notices that there are two brass rods running through the center of the mini-lab into an acrylic base that hold the whole thing together. Now, middle of the night, half in the bag, he gets to work. So I push this thing over off just towards the edge of the desk so I can look underneath it. And sure enough, there's a big screw that goes from there to hold this pole in place. Well, nobody's thinking about this, and I don't think that they actually used any sort of um, glue or anything to bind this. So I found a pair of scissors that had just enough width to unscrew that base, pulled the whole thing out of the bottom, lifted the top base off, Now we've got full access to the aquarium. We're moving stuff. We're writing little notes. And and Steve actually takes one of the cubes, actually both of them, and spells his initials, SS, through the coffee grounds. I'm like, no, no, you can't. I mean, this isn't isn't like you're, you're tagging your graffiti art out there on the side of the street with your own little gang symbol. Don't do that. But... I was too afraid to try to erase it because it's going to look different or it's going to look bad. So we just let it go. Now they're going farther than they've ever gone before. This isn't giving a little hint of psychic ability and letting Phillips and his crew measure the effect in millimeters. This is the whole shebang. The largest demonstration of psychic ability so far. And it happens in the middle of the night with no one watching and neither of them supposed to be in the lab. The boys do their best to clean up their shoe prints, and they stumble back to the hotel. Then, at 5 a.m., 
phone starts ringing. He says, how'd you sleep? I said, oh, man, I didn't sleep well at all. I, I kept waking up all night. I was having nightmares that I was in the Mac lab and things were just bending all around me and going crazy. It was like there was a psychic hurricane inside of here. We'll go back to sleep for a couple of hours, you know, I'll call you later and, you know, you can come to the lab. Within maybe an hour or so, he's calling up, he's all excited. Oh my God, your dream came true, your dream came true. Everything's bent at the Mac lab. Oh, everything bent. I think there was all this energy that built up because you guys weren't successful during the day and when we all left, it just went crazy. And they did it drunk, they did it sloppy, they did it in that impulsive way that only a teenager can, complete with tagging the inside of the mini lab. Okay, well, we'll be in. Yeah, we really want to see this. God, no, I'm hungover. I just want to go to bed for another couple hours. Holy crap, they did it! There's literally no way they don't become the poster boys of psychic phenomenon if the pillars of the scientific community swallow this prank hook, line, and sinker. Mike and Steve will be as gods. And the Mac Lab will be... Uh... The Mac Lab will be ruined. Ruined. ruined and it's at this moment this literal moment in our story that a very important transition occurs in that hungover morning both Steve and Mike realize not only have they gone too deep with the Mac lab there's now no way they can end this quietly because in their adolescent zeal to drunkenly spike the football they broke the law and the true nurturing trust of the Mac Lab staff. To us, in a lot of cases, until the last, probably the last year, it was still just kind of fun and games, but it started weighing on us. We would discuss the times of like how difficult this was becoming because these people were becoming our friends and we were literally lying to our friends. And they're right. In the final write-up from the Mac Lab, after Project Alpha is finished, the staff of the lab takes a fair amount of responsibility. But there are two things that in all of their statements since have remained intractable. The way Project Alpha was revealed and the break-in. The kids, they know they've crossed a line. From this moment on, Project Alpha just isn't the same. Sure, there's more deception, and there is escalation. The experiments get harder and harder and harder. And come on, there's still plenty of partying because a 20-something who just realized their actions affect other people, still a 20-something. But they're about to undergo a grueling two-year gauntlet. The experiments are less fun. The adrenaline is gone. Quietly at first and increasingly louder, the desire to end Project Alpha grows. We are deceiving friends. We are lying to friends. We knew that these people were going to hate us. That he could do anything, get away with anything, because even if it looked like trickery, no, Geller's not a trickster. There's absolutely no way. And he's like, oh my God, we had it! And I screwed it up. And he went bat shit crazy to see this sort of complete mental breakdown that you induced really put everything into perspective 
How do you feel when you know you're sitting on a gold mine, when everything you've worked for in your entire life is finally about to be validated? That's the Mac Lab right now. They went looking for scientific proof of psychic phenomenon, and they have it on a level that no one has ever seen before. You gotta be giddy, self-assured, maybe even a little bit arrogant. But what happens when your joy turns to dust in your hands? When the rewards you thought were in the bank become a scarlet letter that you have to wear forever? What about the boys? What are they supposed to feel? They're the ones who have to plunge the knife into the backs of their new best friends. It's gotta be agony, right? The fruit of the poison tree continues to drop, including one night when the boys are responsible for nothing short of a psychological horror show. All for the advancement of Project Alpha. What for my money is quite possibly the world's greatest con. This episode of World's Greatest Con is written by Justin Robert Young and me, Brian Brushwood, your humble host. Production and research by Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas, with additional production by Will Saddleberg. Original music by Carson Pace. Support us directly and keep the world's greatest cons coming by heading on over to patreon.com slash greatest con. Get an ad-free feed, early access to information, and behind-the-scenes extras. Very special thanks go to Banachek and Mike Edwards for allowing us to tell their story. We greatly encourage you to see Banachek's new show, Mind Games, at the Strat Hotel and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. Additional thanks go to George Slatter Productions, which, along with contemporary news articles, retrospectives, and archive videos, made for the bulk of our research. Of course, you have questions, and we want to answer as many as we can, so hit us up and we'll respond at the end of the season. Write us to worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. On the next episode, we get into the nitty-gritty of Project Alpha's deceptions. The charm begins to wear off, and all hell breaks loose. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.